Hey, this is Mark. We've been broadcasting all week from the Vive event in Miami Beach. Vive is a new tech event focused on the business of health systems. They've gathered a range of top stakeholders to address key issues in digital health, from interoperability to investing, and from the convergence of health data to how COVID has advanced consumerism in healthcare. And we've been bringing you interviews with a number of them. This week on the show, it's the top thought leaders shaping tech-enabled healthcare, interspersed with insights from Vive. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. My guest this time is Elisa Sue Lynch. She's global lead medtech strategy for Google Cloud. And we're going to be speaking about consumerization of healthcare and how healthcare organizations are meeting that challenge. We'll also get her take on the biggest tech leaps made by the health system during the pandemic. But first, some housekeeping items. Recruiting is now open for the next installment of Trend Talks, MMM's invitation-only client-side roundtable. Network with peers, engage in lively discussion, and enjoy other perks of participation. The next Trend Talks is coming up March 23rd. If you're interested in joining, feel free to email me at mark.iskowitz at haymarketmedia.com. And also returning to the event slate for the third year is MMM's 40 Under 40 program, which celebrates the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. The live event is coming up March 24th. For ticket information, visit mmm40under40.com. And now back to our show. Elisa, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Absolutely. Welcome to Miami Beach. It's uh, certainly a nice setting to uh, be doing a podcast. It's definitely nicer than Seattle has been. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same goes for New Jersey. <laughs> Although the weather was uh, in the 70s when I left. So uh, kind of ironic that I went from 70s to 70s. But Yes, it's been nice here. Yes, absolutely. So we got a lot to talk about, so let's just get into it here. First of all, I thought it'd be wonderful uh, for you to tell our listeners about your career journey, because uh, you've had quite a a diverse career arc, which has included more than a two-decade stint at the medical products giant J&J on um, CPG, as well as the prescribing and medtech sides, as well as a fellowship and uh, some other interesting experiences. So why don't you take us through that? Sure. So right now I am working at Google Cloud and I'm in the industry solutions team where we're really working with healthcare organizations to drive digital transformation as well as to really think about how do we transform healthcare through technology. And I have to tell you, Mark, I never would have thought that I'd be working in health tech today because my first job out of college was as a professional modern dancer. So you probably didn't expect that. Um, But my childhood dream was to become a ballerina. And um, I ended up going to college and thinking I was not going to dance again. But I got involved and stayed involved with dance during college and decided to try dancing professionally afterwards instead of going to law school. And I got a job right out of college, right out of senior year. I worked with the Jose Limon Dance Company, um, thought I would go back to law school after two years, but never went back because I was able to continue getting work as a dancer, um, eventually working with Ralph Lemon Company, a smaller contemporary dance company. And it was an amazing experience to be able to travel around the world doing what I loved. Um, But it is not a career that you can do for your whole lifetime unless you want to 
teacher choreograph, which I had decided I did not want to do. So I went back, got my MBA, and switched into marketing. Um, and that was the first job that I got at Johnson & Johnson. So I went through the classical brand management program at J&J. I worked on some iconic brands like Johnson's Baby, Aveeno, Neutrogena. Um, had the opportunity to work in the U.S. as well as in Shanghai, China. And um, also left for a brief period, went to Bausch Health. Uh, at the time, it was called Valiant Pharmaceuticals, led their CeraVe brand, which is now a very popular skincare brand, uh, since acquired by L'Oreal, and, uh, and then returned to J&J. So all in all, I spent 20 years at J&J, and after I returned, I decided I wanted to work more in healthcare. And luckily at J&J, being a big multinational company that works across multiple sectors, I was able to move into a healthcare role. So I went and led global marketing for the LifeScan diabetes business, uh, which is really a hybrid model. So it's sold in some regions directly to consumer, um, and in other regions it's a, prescri it's a prescription. So it was a great transition from consumer into you know, medical marketing. Um, and my husband and I became empty nesters around that time. J&J uh, had decided to divest the business, which I helped uh, to position the business for sale. And, and I had the opportunity to take on another role and we had loved living abroad. So I raised my hand for a second time to do an international assignment. And my husband and I moved to Zurich, Switzerland. And I uh, went over to lead um, the medical device business in the Europe, Middle East, Africa region. So a part of the medical device business and, and a, a strategic commercial role. And so I was there in Zurich, Switzerland for two and a half years. And um, that was right before the pandemic. And we had decided to move back. Um, and honestly, I, I, we fell in love with the mountains in Switzerland. We had gotten into, my husband got into paragliding. Um, I was very much into hiking and snowshoeing. And so being empty nesters, we decided, you know, we don't need to, I used to live in New Jersey. We don't need to move back to New Jersey. <laughs> Where in the U.S. has mountains? And that led us to Seattle. So I decided to move to Seattle and there was not an opportunity to stay with J&J at the time. So I decided to also leave J&J and make that life decision. Um, and, you know, really spent some time thinking about what was next. I knew I loved healthcare. I loved the impact that I could make in healthcare. But I also, also recognized that I really enjoyed innovation, faster paced um, industries. And I sort of looked over at health tech and said, you know, the ideal job would be if I could work in health tech. And somehow, uh, Google approached me about this job at Google Cloud, and um, now I'm, I'm really loving what I'm doing. I've been learning so much. I've been at Google Cloud now for a year and a half, and um, it's a great combination of leveraging my healthcare background, but also learning the tech and thinking about healthcare from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm surprised that, you know, New Jersey wasn't calling you back, and, you know, wasn't luring you back, but that's another topic. <laughs> yes, yes. But you're, you're, so you're leading med tech strategy. Does that involve um, helping med tech companies move to the cloud, or is it that kind of med tech in a broader sense? Yeah, it is um, at the core helping companies with digital transformation, um, leveraging our cloud-based tools and technologies. But at Google Cloud, we really like to think about 
what are the business challenges that organizations or business leaders are trying to solve, and then how can we apply our tools, technologies, and our intelligence, so the AI and machine learning, to help solve those problems. So, um, you know, we're the number three cloud player in the marketplace, so we don't want to approach it just from an infrastructure um, perspective. We really want to help solve business challenges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. Yes. And, and, you know, speaking of the cloud um, and Google being the, the number three player, uh, cloud companies have really solidified their positions over the last two years with a lot of uh, software as a service clients, health systems and so forth moving to the cloud. Um, you know, for a health system or hospital, putting their data on the cloud, you know, offers, offers them a lot of flexibility from what I've been hearing here at the conference. How has the pandemic affected that market, would you say? Yeah, I mean, our business is growing. I think our fourth quarter quarter results for Google Cloud were up 45%, and that's not atypical for the other cloud players as well. So I think there's been a lot of cloud adoption and recognition that data really has a big role to play, and healthcare data in particular has a big role to play during a crisis. Um, so, you know, we have really focused a lot on developing solutions to help providers with Um, remote patient monitoring or um, how do they streamline clinical workflows or operational workflows for all the healthcare workers who are certainly burnt out. Um, And yeah, it's been a wild ride, (laughs) I would say, (laughs) but it's, uh, I think there's a recognition that a secure, compliant cloud platform, um, particularly in the area of AI and machine learning, is really a great way to drive collaboration uh, globally, but then also to manage just lots and lots of data. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, we're here at a, at a tech conference. A lot of the companies here have a value proposition of helping the healthcare system to be more consumer friendly. And there's a sense that COVID has, you know, sort of propelled the industry uh, in terms of progress in that regard. Can you talk about some trends you're seeing driving the consumerization of healthcare? Sure. So I think during the pandemic, we've really seen consumers taking more control of their own health. So they're adopting technologies like virtual care, digital health tools like wearables or apps. I myself bought a Peloton during the pandemic. How did you? Um, And we also have seen consumers being more willing to share their data if they think that they can get value from it. So um, consumers are sharing more data with their doctors out of necessity because of virtual care, um, but also with their families. You know, I, my, I myself have gotten closer to my family during uh, the pandemic, and I think there's a recognition that you need to rely on each other in terms of health care, um, but also for research. So being willing to share their data for research purposes. And um, I can actually share a couple of stats um, mm-hmm. that I was just looking at, but According to a 2021 survey, 80% of patients said that they prefer to use digital channels to communicate with their doctors, um, at least some of the time. So 80%, that's a pretty high number. Um, Also, the number of connected wearable devices, and you may be aware, but Google acquired the Fitbit uh, brand last year. Uh, The number of connected, (laughs) hopefully you have one on. Um, (laughs) The number of connected wearable devices is predicted to reach more than 1 billion this year alone. That's just a massive amount of devices that are all generating data. And then um, finally, 
from a Deloitte survey, consumers said they're more willing uh, to share their personal information. So I already referenced that earlier. Mm-hmm. Sure, if, if they're going to get some value uh, in return, exactly. as you said. So there's a lot more willingness uh, to um, not set aside necessarily people's concern about privacy of their health data, which is, of course, very important, but, but to realize that there's a, a trade off. Um, and that um, you can only get value if, you, if you're willing to share it uh, to some extent with, with the proper you know, protections and, and safeguards in, in place, yes. which is part of what the cloud offers from, from what I understand. Yes. Um, you know, that said, you know, providing that Amazon-like experience is not easy. Uh, many have tried and failed. What are some of the challenges or barriers uh, that you see for creating a consumer-centric healthcare experience? Yeah, I think first I'd like to just acknowledge all the healthcare workers and the immense amount of pressure that they've been under. Um, and, you know, that said, I, I wanted to share a personal experience. So I had to have emergency surgery on my hand last summer. So this was in the midst of the pandemic. Um, maybe people were, had started to be uh, vaccinated, but I had an unexpected, unexplained infection in my thumb. And um, the experience as a patient, even though I work in the healthcare industry, was really, really stressful. Um, I felt out of control. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I called my primary care doctor who wasn't available to see me. So they said, go to an urgent care center. But they directed me to one that was further away because that would be a network. Otherwise, if I went to the one closer to me, they wouldn't have my patient records. Um, and it, you know, I ended up in the emergency room because I started on antibiotics, went home, but then the infection started spreading all the way up my arm. So quite scary. Um, so I went to the emergency room, had to wait there for hours in pain, um, repeat my story multiple times, ended up spending the night in the ER, not knowing what was going on. And then in the morning had a virtual consult with a hand surgeon Um, He said, you need to get surgery now. So I'm coming in. And I'm lucky because I have great health care coverage. I live in Seattle. I probably got the best care possible. But it still was not. um, And I love Amazon, even though they're a competitive cloud. I am an Amazon.com prime consumer. And it was not an Amazon-like experience. Um, So I think we, as patients, we're consumers. We are now expecting that same digital experience, um, or we're expecting that same seamless experience. Um, And that's a big challenge in the healthcare industry because just from a data perspective, the example I gave, my my patient records, um, there are multiple systems, multiple EHR systems. Um, Patients don't necessarily have all of their records on their phone to be able to share. So I think there's just a big opportunity um, from a data sharing, from a data interoperability, um, and then thinking from a consumer perspective. I think there's a lot that healthcare could potentially learn from consumer marketing. Sure. Having had that experience, which is unfortunate, and thank thank goodness that you're, you yes. came out of it well, um, happy to hear that. Um, is there anything that you would has caught your eye since then that you would say, okay, this is a point solution that has potential or a platform solution that has potential to iron out some of those, at least some of those friction points that you experience in your own patient journey? Yeah, I think just from the patient record perspective, I, you know, I'm 
pretty savvy digitally and I know the healthcare industry, but having it all on my phone would be amazing. So the scans that I had, the notes from the doctor, I, I would you know love to own all of that information and be able to easily share that if I'm in the hospital or a clinic or a different care environment, or even with my mother, who is a um, former uh, general practitioner. So I mm. usually call her and I'm like, uh-huh. my thumb is swollen, what should I do? <laughs> um, and then she'll ask me you know, for questions. It would be great if I could share that with her. And I think there are a lot of digital health startups that are tackling that. Um, but it does take different organizations across the healthcare ecosystem being willing to share their information on patients, um, patients being savvy enough to be able to leverage technology to track their records. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of investment in this area, but still a lot of opportunity. Sure, sure. Okay. And as a former CPG marketer, um, other other kind of 20,000 foot level insights that you could share to improve the patient experience or the healthcare experience? Yeah, good question. Um, So I think number one is start by putting the consumer at the center. And I'll just tell you a quick story. When I moved from the consumer business at J&J to work in medical devices, it was really apparent to me when working on the consumer business, we always put the consumer at the center. So it always started with what is the need that we're trying to solve for the consumer? Um, How do we talk about it in consumer language? Um, And when I moved over to the medical device business, it is a B2B model, so it's not a D2C model. But I never even heard people internally talking about patients. It was always the customer or the surgeon, and often N of one, Dr. So-and-so thinks this, so therefore let's develop this product. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but- um, Just it, a little. It, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all about the KOL, right? And uh, It's all about the KOL, right, yes, so which absolutely is important, but who does the KOL care about? Who does the surgeon care about? The surgeon cares about the patient. So I- recognized that there was an opportunity, hey, what if we started focusing more on the patient first? That then also automatically solves what the surgeon or the doctor or the KOL is actually concerned about, and maybe that will help drive our business. So, um, so I think start by putting the consumer at the center, and um, I love this concept that um, the late Clay Christensen um, really talked about, which is jobs to be done. And so that's a great methodology that uh, marketers can use, thinking about what's the job to be done? What are you solving for? What is the consumer expecting um, that can go, um, that, can, that can help guide people? I think the second thing is, um, and it's a big opportunity that we're moving towards in healthcare, is creating a more personalized care experience. And the challenge with that is you need data to be able to understand what's happening with patients across the whole care continuum. Um, So not just during the surgery, but pre and post surgery. How is the patient preparing at home? How are they recovering at home? How is what they're doing impacting their overall outcome? And also, you know, maybe what are behaviors that a Fitbit or a different healthcare organization can help reinforce um, to drive a better outcome. So I think a more personalized care experience um, will help drive better outcomes and also maybe get patients more engaged with their own care. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I think 
you know, going back to the Amazon example, although I hate to promote Amazon. <laughs> They're the number one cloud provider, so it's okay. Nah, um, is creating an omni-channel experience. Um, and so we know that retail, hospitality, financial services, they are more advanced than healthcare is in terms of adopting digital technologies on creating an omni-channel experience. And I think there's a lot we can learn from other industries in making it a more seamless, digital, simple experience and the experience that consumers expect. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And much like consumerization of healthcare, I think uh, leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning to advance health has seen its share of failures. It now seems like uh, that won't be a single vendor solution, uh, but sort of the advancement is kind of diffused throughout the industry. We've seen a lot of startups and, and um, uh, individual firms that are uh, trying to leverage AI for medicine uh, on the clinical side, uh, whether it's diagnostics or treatment. And, uh, you know, you were on a panel today called AI's Power Play, uh, discussing where you see the greatest potential in that area. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think industry has learned from those, the past stumbles uh, and what contexts for using AI are you most encouraged by? Yeah, so we know that AI is predicted to be the number one driver of GDP growth within the next 10 years. So it is really poised to transform every industry, including healthcare. And Google really has been investing in AI and machine learning, not necessarily in healthcare, but broadly on our consumer platforms for many, many years. So everything from Google Search to Google Maps and YouTube, those are all powered by AI. And we are now really investing in AI and healthcare as are other organizations. And our approach at Google Cloud is really to enable organizations to use the same toolkit that Google uses in developing AI and machine learning and to leverage that same toolkit to help them develop AI, machine learning, and apply it to, to relevant use cases for their organizations. Um, one of the things we talked about on the panel is where we're seeing better adoption or initial adoption of AI in healthcare is more in the operational efficiency space. So, um, you know, creating a digital front door, using chatbots, um, streamlining, uh, processing clinical documents using natural language processing. Um, so areas where people can measure tangible benefits pretty quickly. Um, I did give an example, though, where Google has been investing in AI for clinical decision support. So um, we have developed an algorithm with Emory University to help predict the onset of sepsis. So sepsis is an autoimmune reaction to infection, and it's one of the deadliest and most expensive conditions to address in U.S. hospitals, and it impacts three-quarters of a million of Americans every year. So there's no reliable way to predict the onset of sepsis, um, but doing so would help save many lives, uh, as well as costs and resources. So in partnering with Emory University, we developed an algorithm that looked at 72 different factors and was able to predict the onset of sepsis within four to six hours um, at 85% accuracy. So that's really significantly improving the, t the time to diagnosis. So I think there's a lot of promising ways that we can apply AI on the clinical side as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, sounds very promising. And um, I'd like to 
shift gears a second and talk a little bit about, uh, since you mentioned uh, areas that Google Cloud has been investing from a healthcare perspective um, in the health equity area as well. Um, and, um, you know, it's certainly a, a big topic. You know, bias is a big topic uh, in, in healthcare today. And wondering how Google is addressing that. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this topic. It's a really important topic and one that we focus a lot on at Google. Um, so we know that AI algorithms and data sets can reflect, they can reinforce, or they can reduce unfair biases. So it's really critical to think proactively about the design and the engineering of AI systems to account for bias. Um, so Google has developed responsible AI principles and we have a whole governance process where we review any algorithms that are being developed internally um, through the lens of, of uh, bias. Um, but it's super important and I, I can give an example actually from outside of healthcare of, of um, how we apply that process. So. <clears throat> So we um, recently introduced the new Pixel 6, which is a um, Google camera. And the team wanted to actually develop a more equitable camera. Uh, pictures are a really big part of how we see each other and how we perceive the world. And historically, racial bias in camera technology has overlooked people of color. So the product team recognized that and really proactively reached out to image makers who are celebrated for depicting communities of color. And they really just wanted to understand how can we do better? What, what things should we be taking into consideration? And this group of image makers advised the product team on incorporating more portraits of people of color into the image data sets that train the camera algorithms. And they also gave feedback that helped us make really key improvements on key features of the Pixel 6. So face detection uh, by simply including more images of people of color is now better able to depict diverse faces in different lighting conditions. Um, there's also that auto exposure feature of the camera and that can unnaturally brighten or darken someone's face. Um, so we improve that so people can be more seen as they really are. And um, you know, another example is just stray light. So stray light in a picture can unnaturally wash out darker skin tones. So just being aware of those things and accounting for them in the image data sets, um, in the algorithms, um, is, is just an example of how you can address bias. But there's, you know, we're always learning. Sure, sure. Previously on this podcast, I had one of your colleagues uh, from Google Cloud, Joe Miles, telling us about uh, findings from a recent survey that Google Cloud conducted amongst healthcare providers, asking them, uh, first of all, benchmarking from uh, February 2020, uh, and then again in June 2021, what they thought was the biggest technological leaps made by the healthcare system over that time. Unsurprisingly, telehealth bubbled to the surface, but I wanted to get from your point of view what you think uh, are the greatest advancements made in the health system. Uh, as the system as we know it kind of reboots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly telehealth, uh, the adoption of uh, virtual care has gone up, as has remote patient monitoring. So not only outside of the hospital, but within the hospital, you know, think about um, care staff didn't want to go into the rooms because of the, con um, you know, 
potential of infection. So uh, remote patient monitoring. And um, another example is just how the healthcare industry came together to develop the vaccines. So there was much more sharing and willingness to share research, to share scientific learning, and to share data. So we already talked earlier about consumers being more more willing to share their data, but I think across the healthcare ecosystem as well, there has been more willingness to share data for the benefit of public health, um, which I'm really encouraged to see. Um, But that is still a challenge from a data perspective. Data interoperability remains a challenge. Um, Who owns the data? Ensuring that you have proper consent management, secure private you know, cloud platforms, ideally, um, to manage that data. So, um, you know, a lot of great advancements in the technology landscape um, that we're still continuing to work on. Sure, sure. And that, uh, you know, harnessing of of data for public health is really... if, if the pandemic wasn't a, a proof case for that, then I don't know what. And the collaboration around the and the vaccines yes. also another another great example. Um, so um, finally, you know, one one last question. I'll let, let you go, Elisa. Um, you know, you, you spoke on this panel earlier today. You know, I'm sure you've been networking uh, like the rest of us, and maybe even had a chance to walk the the exhibit hall floor. What are some of the you know learnings from the event that you plan to take back to your office in Seattle? Yeah, it's been a great event. Um, Number one, just I've been able to meet some team members in person. So I started at Google during the pandemic and um, it's been exhausting, but it's just wonderful to actually meet people in person and gather um, safely um, and get to know people on that one-to-one basis. And then likewise, you know, Vive has just been great from a connection standpoint across the healthcare ecosystem. So I've been meeting with startup companies, I've been meeting with medtech and provider, you know, organizations, current customers, potential prospects. And that's really what these conferences are all about, Um, as well as, you know, all the thought leadership that uh, the panels are providing. It's uh, it's very stimulating. um, And I'm glad to be here. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We have certainly a number of the representatives of the of the four or five P's. You know, we've got the policymakers. Yes. We've got pharma. We've got physicians, providers, payers. Come to think, we've got all five P's here. So, mm-hmm. and the startup community as well. So, and we're patients. Yes. And, and we're patients. Sorry. <laughs> Duh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, I really appreciate you speaking with us. It's been really a great talk. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizi M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.